Hey, Phil, how's it going? Not too bad. I see you're uh, at the mothership in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Yep, still up here in, I guess you could say, the unfree part of the country. Yeah, but uh, you you guys, I, I looked this up, and it has been just a little over a year since the last time we talked about COVID and lockdowns and and uh, Fauci's hysteria. And what, what what's kind of funny, I guess, is that we did our last show on April 1st. Right. And it turns out that the joke's on us because I don't think either one of us, as, as worried as we were about the precedents established last year, I don't think either one of us could have imagined that we're still going on with this stuff. It, it's, it's a level of insanity that, that I have a hard time articulating without sounding like a bit of a nut job. That's the same response that uh, and I'm seeing everywhere. We were when we last talked, I guess we were in uh, the tail end of two weeks to flatten the curve. Yeah, and two weeks became two months, two months became a year. And here we are still uh, talking about this, still fighting this battle. So um, I've been struggling and and the, the new thing, and this is it's it's like one thing after another because because we were going to flatten the curve. And then lockdowns became more permanent, and then we added masks, and then Fauci said we had to wear two masks. And and it just seems like one thing after another, and and maybe we can get into the data. Um, this is not necessarily my point for this conversation, but the new thing, which isn't isn't really a new thing, I think I think you can you can probably inform us as to where this idea of vaccine passports came from. Um, the new thing is vaccine passports, and I'm struggling to explain to, to reasonable people why this is such a horrific, anti-human, um, uncivil libertarian thing to do. And I, I'm, I'm kind of failing, um, but, but let's start. And, and, and you wrote something that, that triggered in my mind perhaps a good historical analogy, but, but if, you, if you know anything, give us, give us some background on where this idea of vaccine passports came from. Well, the deep history of it's all back in the progressive era when vaccination was a relatively new thing. Uh, it was seen as the great technology of the time, and it absolutely was, because what did we do? We eradicated smallpox. Uh, we, we suppressed polio. There are uh, uh, dozens of significant pathogens that historically had plagued humanity since the dawn of time until really about the early 20th century, and we overcame them uh, through vaccination. But paired with those scientific advances, there was always the uh, a variety of interest groups involved in the state that wanted to use the powers of the state to latch on to science and, uh, and shape the social discourse. Uh, so one of the alarming uh, historical tidbits that we see here, there was actually a, uh, quite a bit of litigation before the U.S. court system on mandatory vaccination at the early 20th century when all these things are coming into existence. And it was very quickly appropriated by a much uglier uh, political movement, but the eugenics movement today. Uh, so there's a famous Supreme Court case in 1927 uh, where Justice Oliver, Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the, uh, the leading progressives of his day, uh, ruled on the right of government to, to mandate sterilization of people that were seen as unfit. This is the infamous case where he declares that three generations of imbeciles are, are too many, and therefore the person that was uh, being brought before the court could be forcibly sterilized. And if you read the full opinion, though, the, the line immediately before that uh, kind of zinger he throws in at the end, this horrific eugenic zinger, says that the 
the very same principle that allows us to compel vaccination, i.e. vaccine passports, also allows us to tie up the fallopian tubes. So there's a really ugly historical link here that I think we need to be very uh, keenly aware of because the legal principle of making something mandatory is very different from the scientific principle of making something available and encouraging it. And if you do so in a, in a voluntary way, you know, our principle of a voluntary society is that people will make that decision for themselves. And the vast majority of people are rational human beings that don't want to be subjected to disease. They're going to choose to get vaccinated. Yeah, I, I, I really don't understand the logic. I'm not an epidemiologist, but everyone's looking for these these very heavy-handed and authoritarian and top-down ways of ensuring that that we reach herd immunity. Yeah. And and as much as uh, um, you folks involved with the Great Barrington Declaration were demonized for uttering the words herd immunity, it sounds like we've come full circle and, right. and people acknowledge that this is a thing, um, but what's, um, and everyone's saying this is not, a, there's no libertarian solution to this. We must use force. We must uh, badger people into doing this, but it strikes me that at this point, we're two years in, um, two years, I don't know, but lockdowns, is it two years? Um, uh, no, it's it seems year. like it. I think we're at uh, yeah. just past a year. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of Fauci telling us that we actually aren't allowed to do anything until two yeah. years out. Yeah. Um, but it but it strikes me that ultimately the the common sense, what your mom taught you, libertarian solution, is still the thing. Uh, some some a significant portion of the population now have natural immunity. Yeah. A significant po portion of the population have decided to get the vaccine. And we're quibbling about whether or not everyone else, and Fauci says everyone has to get vaccinated, but that's not how viruses work, is it? Well, and throw on top of that, in large swaths of the country, right now, significant parts of the, of the population could not get a vaccine if they wanted to. And that includes where I am right now. I'm in the state of Massachusetts. I could walk down to the local Walgreens and CVS and say, I would like a vaccine. And they would respond and say, no, you are not eligible. You don't fall into the demographic category. Why? Because they centrally planned the rollout. And that rollout uh, you know, it had some basis in it. Let's prioritize the elderly. Let's prioritize people that are, uh, are at higher risk than I am. Uh, but at the same time, it also has all sorts of political privileges. So, uh, so teachers unions and all the public public sector employees they get put on the front of the list of who gets to uh, to be vaccinated. And we're still in like phase 2.37b or something of the governor's plan to roll out the vaccine. It's going it's not going to be until probably the end of this month until uh, the general population is eligible. And yet at the same time, you have Fauci going on TV saying, not only uh, should everyone get the vaccine, which is responsible for people that are vulnerable, he's saying everyone must get the vaccine, even though large swaths of the country, many people are not even eligible. Well, that's, that's my situation in Washington, DC. I finally was notified by the district government that I, I have been deemed qualified to now get in the queue and get the vaccine. And and one thing they did in the district, perhaps they did this in Massachusetts as well, is that one of the overlays was not had nothing to do with science. It has to do with the fact that I live in a health, uh, a wealthy ward yeah. relative to other wards in the District of Columbia. So they, they, they took something that ostensibly was scientific and turned it into sort of a social justice, uh, screw the rich kind of thing, which doesn't doesn't make any sense. That's not science. That's politics. And that's absolutely. And, and my my beef with this um, 
like this this whole process of of getting the vaccine i normally i would i would probably have gotten the vaccine already uh, the government has not allowed me to up until this point but all the badgering and the very process by which the government went out and 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 monopolized uh, they purchased all the vaccinations and they distributed them in a certain way um, i don't trust the politicization politicization of the process and i i'm happy to sort of sit back um, and and see how this plays out because politics is no way to run medicine i, I thought we knew that yeah yeah and that's the maddening uh, nature of the entire thing and we see this, there's a lot of uh, variation in the different states on how they did their vaccine rollouts. And a lot of the states in the South and the West were much more open, much less bureaucratic. If you wanted the vaccine and you fell into the eligibility categories, which opened up really quickly, all you had to do was go down to the distribution center and sign up and you could be home that afternoon with the vaccine. Those are the states that uh, have gotten a much better job done at uh, distributing the vaccines. They have larger portions of their populations are now vaccinated. And yet these heavy top-down states that have the bureaucratic plans are lagging behind the rest of the country. It also turns out that those are the same states that had the heavy-handed lockdowns. Uh, they try to centrally plan every single aspect of the pandemic. Uh, they, they failed at lockdowns and now they're failing at vaccine distribution. And lo and behold, seeing the surges of uh, coronavirus cases over the last few weeks. It's places like Michigan, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, places that were heavy handed in their lockdowns and heavily bureaucratic in their vaccine distribution. So I think I think everyone is maybe surprised. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that about the sort of second season of, of the coronavirus. But I, I remember back to our original conversation and and the, the very models that, that told us we needed to lock down um, predicted, if they were being honest, that, that flattening the curve pushes it out. Spread it out, yeah. And, and on net, um, pushing it out actually would, would lead to more deaths over time as opposed to a, a shorter cycle. Is, is that part of what we're seeing right now, why this, this thing just doesn't seem to go away? Yeah, so I think there's a complexity of reasons. Uh, we, we simply don't know every factor that makes the virus spread the, the way that it does. We do know now that it has a clear seasonal pattern to it uh, that seems to play out in different climate zones, different regions of the country, uh, but on in waves. And we've observed this over the last year. There's a spike, then a drop over the summer, then a spike again in most of the United States and in many other countries around the world. So that's certainly an element of it. And what it means is we're kind of still in the, uh, uh, the late winter, early spring wave of, uh, of just a seasonal virus. You add on to that, the states that are seeing the surges again, uh, number one, have generally been behind the curve on vaccine rollout. Uh, number two, they were much more heavily locked down. Uh, so I, I'd imagine that these things are probably working in conjunction with each other, of uh, not having enough people vaccinated, also uh, being much more heavily dependent on lockdowns over the last year, has meant that the, uh, uh, that the spread of the disease is now really concentrated at the peak of a, a seasonal wave. So we're starting to see some of that pattern play out again. And one, one of the things you've done and a number of uh, uh, folks have looked at the comparison of, of these these waves of infections and 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 deaths um, comparing state after state and even country after country 
And it's fair to say at this point that there is zero relationship between lockdowns and masks relative to the the uh, 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 success of the virus. I think that's absolutely the case. I've looked at this myself in every uh, statistical approach that I know how to do. I've also enlisted other social scientists that work on this. It's all spurious noise. There's not even a minimal correlation between locking down and being able to control the virus. Uh, and, and in fact, you see the exact opposite. You see uh, virus waves peaking at the exact same moment in countries that are both completely open, like Sweden, and completely locked down, like the UK. If you overlay the two curves on top of each other, the timing's exact in the UK, which is under lockdown, is actually worse than Sweden. Uh, same thing is playing out in, in states here in the U.S. So we, we've heard a lot of the comparisons being made between the large states like New York and California, which were heavy handed in their lockdowns. And uh, they not only had one lockdown, but two lockdowns uh, in each wave. And then you have states that are relatively open, like Texas or completely open, like Florida. And Texas and Florida are doing no worse than California and New York. And in many cases, many metrics they are doing quite a bit better. The, you know, the demonization of uh, Governor DeSantis is is a fascinating exercise in in uh, in political um, narrative driving or something, because um, you would expect that Florida, which I, I used to work for a congressman from Florida, and Florida um, has the the oldest population in the country, absolutely, and and you would have expect to see something far more difficult in their numbers. So it, it suggests to me that that locking down may actually have a, a negative effect, particularly this 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 trend of, of keeping uh, seniors who are in retirement homes uh, locked inside, which is happening in some countries across the world. It seems like just an evil policy. Yeah, it's absolutely horrific. And we're, we're hearing stories out of Canada uh, that are, are, are just, uh, you know, they send chills down your spine to read people inside of nursing homes that have not been allowed to leave their room in weeks. Uh, I think there was one one instance where uh, uh, they were being even only permitted to, to shower or bathe once a week, uh, given sponge baths the rest of the time because it was under the coronavirus protocol, they had to remain confined in their rooms. And these are elderly people that are begging to be let out, begging to uh, to simply go outside, not even be exposed to society in general, but they're under lockdowns in nursing homes. And we've seen the nursing home issue uh, remain as a problem basically since the start of the pandemic. If you remember way back in uh, around January 2020, where was the first uh, significant outbreak in the United States? It was a nursing home in Washington state. That should have been the first clue of where our, our vulnerabilities were. Instead, what did we do? We ignored the nursing homes. We adopted a model by Neil Ferguson that explicitly excludes nursing homes from its calculations. Uh, you can read the paper from 2006 is based on, and it says that in there. It says we don't include nursing homes in our model. And we made policy based on controlling the general population. Meanwhile, the focus on nursing homes was entirely about using them as like this overflow capacity for a hospital uh, crunch that never really came. Uh, so the, the claim in New York City was that the hospitals were going to be overloaded. Therefore, we moved patients back into the nursing homes. Well, they moved the patients back into the nursing homes and the hospitals were never overloaded. Uh, what did that do though? It carried the coronavirus 
indoors into a confined environment where people are sitting in their 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 rooms, basically confined in their rooms for weeks on end, and the virus runs rampant in some of the most vulnerable people of our society. You get mass death. You get uh, Governor Cuomo's attempt to cover up that mass death. You get statistics that actually show uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 percent of all coronavirus deaths in the United States are nursing home residents. This is less than 1% of the population, accounts for 40% of the deaths. That's tragic, that's horrific, and it's a clear, clear case, uh, piece of evidence that what we did not only failed to mitigate the pandemic, it made it worse. Yeah, and that's that's sort of the basis of the Great Barrington Declaration that, that, um, that what we should have done, which again was perhaps um, not obvious, but 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 pretty clear early on was was protect vulnerable populations and and Andrew Cuomo, who's now suffering some accountability for his actions, um, did the opposite. He locked everything down and he actually forced um, uh, recovering seniors into nursing homes against the objections of every single rational person yeah. in that community. But uh, we spent a lot of time last time. Uh, Picking on Neil Ferguson yeah. and the Imperial College model, but but we we have a I feel like there's there's a more culpable person that has propagated all of all of this mythology, and that's Anthony Fauci. And you, you've coined you've coined a term that I quite like called Fauciism. 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 We we'll use Fauciism. And <laughs> and what what is Fauciism? I, I define Fauciism as a highly technocratic medical approach to government that, that seems to view society almost as like it was a, a, a computer game that you can manipulate through central planning from the top down. Although it's not necessarily economic central planning as we're used to discussing, it's type of a, a, a scientific central planning where if you pull levers at this certain point in, in uh, the course of the pandemic, that's going to change the trajectory of the virus's spread. And if you you turn one knob, it enacts a lockdown. Turn another knob, it puts in a mask mandate. And you can, with precision, guide the course of the pandemic. Uh, so, so there's a, a huge hubris that underlies this ideology of uh, deferring to like an expert command and control figure such as Fauci to just issue edicts, and everyone's supposed to go and implement it, and then everything's supposed to be fine. The problem is that Fauci himself turns out to have a pretty poor track record of being able to predict what uh, his edicts are going to do. Uh, he also seems to have a, a very strong disregard for the norms of democratic representative governance. And, you know, we can debate uh, the, the merits of that type of a system separately, but it is ingrained into our, uh, our federal constitution. And yet you have a figure like Fauci who wants to set aside any legislative deliberation on these policies that he's advocating and just have them come down from a decree from the NIH or the CDC or the state health bureaucrat, and no one is allowed to question that decree because it's all done under emergency orders. So I define Fauciism as medical technocracy done in a top-down, almost autocratic way. You know, it feels like, and I said this about vaccine passports, again, trying to find that analogy that would resonate with people. Um, vaccine passports seem like a perfectly great idea yeah. for farm animals, yeah. <laughs> but not for people. And I think, um, you know, there, it, uh, now that I've, I know way more about epidemiologists than I ever really needed to know or wanted to know, but, but two things that you learn is that they are extraordinarily 
hypochondriac. Yeah. And that they very much uh, have this have these blinders on where they're just thinking about the human population as if it was a herd of cattle and they're not giving them they just don't care about other considerations like civil liberties or or the economy or or even other diseases although i would think they should um but i, I feel like fauci's worse than that because um he keeps flip-flopping and, and you document this and this this is like the the core of what I want to talk about today. Um, and by the way, if anybody wants to understand what's going on, I, I highly recommend going to AIER.org and not just reading Phil's work, but a, but a number of scholars um, have documented that. And you can also check out the Great Barrington Declaration. But, but, the, but this one is fascinating because it gets to a historical analogy that might resonate with people. Fauci, and this is your article, Fauci was duplicitous on the AIDS epidemic too. And it turns out that that Fauci's been in government since like before um, Thomas Jefferson became president or something right. insane like that. Um, the dude has been embedded in the federal alphabet bureaucracies. And, and it turns out he was the guy that started um, um, Started, I don't know if it started is too strong of a term, but he, but he definitely fed um, the AIDS hysteria by by writing an article in an in an in academic medical journal suggesting that maybe AIDS was transmitted through casual contact or just being near somebody. T tell a little bit about that story. Yes, this all goes back to 1983, and in in uh, particular May 6, 1983. So uh, AIDS was a, a, a very newly discovered disease. They were trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, there were people dying of it, people uh, suffering in hospitals from it. Uh, and it had grabbed the medical attention of the nation with good reason. And Fauci is uh, a young doctor at that point. He had just assumed his position at the National Institutes for Health, the one that he still holds uh, 40 years later. Uh, I, I kind of liken him to the J. Edgar Hoover of the NIH rather than like this uh, medical doctor with the bedside manner. He's actually a career bureaucrat, but uh, this is his first major foray into a, an epidemic. And what he does on May 6, 1983, is he publishes an editorial in the Journal of the American Medical Association. This is one of these top-tier elite journals that supposedly has the dissemination of, um, of the top medical advice in the day. And it's his summary of what he thinks is going on with the AIDS crisis. And right around that time, uh, there was a um, another doctor who had discovered the first case, confirmed case of AIDS, or what we later discover as HIV, in an infant baby. And uh, the question there is, well, how, how did this baby uh, get AIDS? How did this baby come down with this horrific disease and syndrome? Uh, and the medical community speculating. They, they say, we need to study this. We need to investigate it further. Uh, one doctor proposes what ends up being the, the, um, the actual answer to that. That is that the mother was also infected and transmitted AIDS or HIV through the womb. Uh, so the baby was basically born with this disease. And that turns out to be medically accurate. But there was a competing theory that really didn't have much evidence behind it that said, uh, well, AIDS could be transmitted by close daily contact with someone else in your household. Uh, so if you lived in a house and your brother had AIDS and you're sharing eating utensils with them and sitting around the dinner table, you could potentially pick up the disease. That was the, uh, the scare at the time. There was never really evidence behind it. 
but uh, that was proposed as a theory. So what Fauci did is he tried to summarize what was going on in the scientific literature, and in doing so, he failed to read the paper that documented a pretty clear case of uh, of uh, trans uh, transfer from the mother to the baby in the uterus, and went all in on a wildly irresponsible speculation about this alternative theory that you could get it from sharing dinner utensils or uh, hanging around in the living room with someone else in your household. And he, he, he uses a, a very couched style of language, and you see this still today in his press conferences and public statements. He says, well, uh, the virus might transmit this way. It could transmit this way. And if it does, things are going to be really bad. So the quote that comes at the end of this article, he's, he says, uh, we, we're starting to see evidence that the virus might expand into household transmission. And if it does, all hell will break loose. It's basically an apocalyptic quote. It's published in the top medical journal, and the very next day, the Associated Press, UPI, New York Times, you name it, every single major news outlet in America runs a headline story that say, doctors say AIDS may be transmitted through household contact. And that, that triggered a political feeding frenzy where um, suddenly, um, you know, uh, particularly the gay community, but, but people with AIDS were were effectively treated as pariahs, as second-class citizens, as and they didn't use the word back then, but as super spreaders, right? Yeah, exactly. They were they were ostracized, uh, and it, it really targeted uh, uh, homosexuals, which were seen as the, uh, uh, the the source of the pandemic through uh, uh, what turns out to be a very discriminatory approach. But we also have cases throughout the 1980s of, of even like school children that picked up the disease from blood transfusions, but were blocked from attending their classrooms, all based on what turns out to be like this crackpot theory that they could transmit AIDS uh, through household or, or regular contact. And Fauci is one of the original disseminators of this theory from this article in 1983. It even gets to the point that one month after the article comes out, uh, uh, the conservative far-right columnist Pat Buchanan runs a, uh, a nationally syndicated newspaper column where he quotes the Secretary of Health and Human Services who's trying to uh, 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 discourage this theory, trying to say that, uh, uh, you know, we don't really have evidence of household transmission through basic regular contact. And what Buchanan does, he says, well, the Health and Human Services Secretary may say this, but we have this new article from Dr. Anthony Fauci of the NIH that says household contact may be a thing, and he quotes it at length. Uh, it's entered into the congressional record. It's uh, it's repeated ad nauseum by speeches of politicians, uh, and it turns out to be completely false. Uh, we we even have some evidence later on. There's a, a a famous journalist by the name of Randy Schultz who wrote one of the first histories of the AIDS epidemic. Uh, it's called And the Band Played On. Uh, you may have seen like the HBO miniseries on it. Uh, a very significant work of history. And he investigated this specific article, and he discovered that Fauci was basically negligent in the way that he represented the scholarly literature. Uh, he had uh, not even acknowledged 
the other evidence that was coming in that showed that it was transferred in the uterus and just seized onto this crackpot theory that turned out to be completely false and elevated it with alarmism, as he usually does. Then the press took off with it. Uh, the pundits weighed in. The whole thing was politicized. And next thing you know, you're dealing with a decade-long crisis of ostracizing gay people, of ostracizing people that uh, caught HIV through blood transfusions, of, uh, of basically medical lockdown-style uh, approaches to people that were perceived as super spreaders, and that wasn't even uh, rooted in science. And and in, in your article, um, he completely walks it back and contradicts himself, I think, within three weeks yeah. of, of making the statement... Uh, sort of boldly denouncing this statement as outrageous, even though he is the one that started the the, the theory in the first place. That's exactly it. Uh, I mean, I call him flip-flop Fauci for a reason. We've seen this dozens, if not hundreds of times over the last year, but in 1983, uh, you know, when, when, when this the media frenzy starts and they're all quoting his article, uh, he never directly addresses that in the press, as far as I can tell. But at a, a later point, maybe three or four weeks later, he comes out in the press and says, oh, no, this this theory of household transmission, uh, there's no evidence behind that. What's fascinating, and, and you know, there's sort of the the aura of of science, and and you know, the, uh, the the scientific community can absolutely use a jargon that I wouldn't readily understand, let alone um, you know any any normal person trying to figure out what's going on. So um, you can see how in 1983, a government scientist would. would get away with flip-flopping, but now, now you can easily sort of document, and you do in this article, yeah. um, every single time, not every single time, I'm sure that would be impossible to document, right. <laughs> but, but the major times that, that Fauci said something pretty absolute, and then within weeks flip-flopped, and he, he, I guess he started with with uh, what was what was until just a year ago, the the standard scientific understanding that lockdowns just don't work and that the collateral damage is devastating. That was his opening position on this whole thing. It's absolutely. We can go back to January 24th, 2020. The virus had broken out in the Wuhan region of, of China. And just a day before, that's when the Chinese government locked down the city of Wuhan. And they, they were all over the news showing these draconian measures of roadblocks on the streets, uh, of barricading people into their apartments to prevent them from going outside. Fauci goes on CNN, I think it was, and they ask him about this measure. And he says, I can never imagine doing this to the city of New York or the city of Los Angeles. And the reason I can't imagine it is it's against our political values. And then he goes in and says, you know, epidemiology literature is considered lockdowns or mass quarantines, as they were called before this year, uh, before and the evidence from previous times they've been tried is that they just don't work. And that was his word on uh, January 24th, 2020. Two months later, he's leading the charge to lock down Los Angeles, to lock down New York, and to lock down the rest of the country. And, um, you know, the, the, your, your critics would say, but, but he's learning this whole time, so of course he has to pivot. Is, is that what's going on? I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think what we have in Fauci is he's testing the political winds, and he is saying what he expects his audience to say. He's also saying what he expects is going to keep him at the center of political power, the center of being the spokesman on the pandemic to keep the media going to him. And what he did in early March 2020 is he started to read the cues 
that the uh, the political discourse was shifting toward lockdowns. And he actually misread quite a bit of evidence. He gave testimony before Congress on, uh, I think this was March 11th, uh, 2020, uh, where he goes and, and he says that, uh, uh, I think he had some like outrageous quote. He said something like that the coronavirus could be like uh, a thousand times more deadly than the flu. And there have been several epidemiologists that have studied his language in this testimony, and they found uh, there's one really uh, revealing article that a, uh, I believe is a Canadian epidemiologist published over the last year. And he found that Fauci had just conflated two different terms, two different statistics, and basically read the wrong statistic to Congress, uh, whether intentionally or through sheer incompetence. And that inflamed them into panic mode where they were accepting of lockdowns. Uh, so not only do you have someone who's not updating based on science, but rather than politics, you have someone who's kind of stumbling his way through that really doesn't have a command of the scientific literature. He just spouts terms and talking points that turn out to be wrong or misapplied or misunderstood. So there's there's two layers of uh, Fauchism here that that I that I want to look at, and and the first is is uh, what I would call the pandemic industrial complex. And yeah. and this is a phrase that I don't know if I came up with that phrase, but I was talking to Ivor Cummins on, on my show and and he was talking about this this synergy between um, political actors, um, pharmaceutical companies, NGOs, government bureaucrats, um, all of whom um, thrive um, the worse the pandemic is. And that's sort of like public choice 101 that right. as as a government bureaucrat, it's probably beneficial to have the public convinced that the, the big ones right around the corner, um, because that leads to bigger budgets and that leads to, to more notoriety and all the stuff that 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 um, Fauci is so famous for. And that's that's got to be part of what's going on here, um, even even going back to the to the AIDS uh, scaremongering that he did in 1983. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. You got to remember, this is a guy that's been in government for 40 years. He makes more in salary than the president of the United States. Uh, he is the quintessential budget maximizing bureaucrat uh, who has worked to the very top of his institution and been able to stay there and navigate, uh, you know, a half dozen different presidents. Uh, this is a survivor, a Washington survivor and an ultimate Washington insider. Uh, you can't tell me someone like that is not playing political games and is not skilled at navigating the halls of, of, of the bureaucracy. Uh, so, yeah, that's absolutely the case. Uh, what it unfortunately does is it incentivizes him to speak in a certain style uh, before the public and before the press that you would not find in academic journals that you would not find in the scientific discussions. And that's a style that's always hedging his predictions, always hedging his bets on alarmism, but also giving himself an out to walk it back. So he'll say, uh, this might be really bad unless we lock down tomorrow. Uh, there might be a million people dead from the coronavirus unless you follow my advice. Uh, uh, could, should, uh, all that type of language is, is pervasive in the way that Fauci frames things. And then the next day you see the New York Times and CNN running with headlines that say, Fauci warns of a million deaths. Right. Uh, but when he gets called on it, when it doesn't happen, then he just retreats back. Well, I never said that conclusively. I was saying that could be a possibility. It's, uh, yeah, and and the the media's uh, 
proneness to report hysteria, um, it, it's probably built into the system because it certainly happened in 1983 with AIDS and and it's it's absolutely happened now. But it, it strikes me, getting back to the sort of the political thing, it strikes me that whether or not they intended it at the beginning of the coronavirus uh, pandemic crisis, it's now an opportunity to radically expand the power of government. We've already spent in, in, in the last year, we've spent $6 trillion that we don't have. And that that's just like, there, there is no precedent for that. We've never done anything like that. And we, we really can't imagine what the economic consequences of that are yet. Um, but, but, you know, getting back to vaccine passports, this, this is not something that would ever fly politically if people weren't continuously, endlessly uh, fear-mongered to death. Like people right. just were in the grips of this. I don't know what to do. Can I go outside? Can I, can I live my life or am I going to die? Not only that, you have someone like Fauci right now. I call him uh, probably the most prominent anti-vaxxer in America, not because he's discouraging vaccines, quite the opposite. He's basically giving a message that says, even if you get vaccinated, you can't take off your mask, you can't socialize, you can't return to normal. Uh, in, in a way, it's almost like casting doubt and saying that the vaccines won't work unless we continue these other measures. Uh, and why is he doing that? I can't see any scientific basis for it, but there are a lot of political reasons for it. He wants to stay front and center before the cameras. He wants to uh, uh, maintain his position as the health advisor. He does want to pave the path for other policies that he could not get through in normal times. And you think about something like vaccine passports, uh, especially in the sense that there almost certainly would have to be dependent on the government, on some central authority, uh, setting up a system that, uh, that that tracks vaccination. That's what uh, Cuomo is trying to do in New York right now. And it's already encountering massive bureaucracy. It's already uh, starting to falter even in the logistics of it because it's central planning. Uh, but what does central planning do? Even though it, it, it's, it's always a poor mechanism to deliver on whatever its claim good happens to be, Central planning does provide a lot of jobs for the central planners. It does provide a constant budgetary stream for people that are involved in setting this up. Uh, I say, imagine the Ob Obamacare website from 2014, that disastrous website that uh, uh, crashed and burned and, uh, and was impossible to navigate. Take that and put it on steroids. That's the type of a, uh, uh, a political bureaucratic operation that I think some of these vaccine passport advocates are uh, basically steering towards setting up. And even if it doesn't work and do what it promises to do, it does ensure the bureaucracy has a purpose, has a job, has budgets for decades to come. I have been, uh, and I know you've, you've talked about this as well, I've been shocked at how accepting a lot of Americans seem to this idea that the government would now um, track your health and rank your status and whether or not you've been vaccinated, um, the entire infrastructure of doing that. And, and by the way, tracking you around, where, where did you go to the movies? Where yeah. did you, who did you take out to dinner? Um, the iterations of that invasion of privacy are, are endless. And we can only imagine what this thing looks like 20 years from now, if it in fact becomes a thing. But I'm, I'm surprised that at how many people said, well, that sounds reasonable. And in even some some libertarians are arguing, well, as long as it's private, right. it's gonna be okay. And I, 
this this idea that that somehow anything involved with tracking our our medical information would be strictly private seems fantastical to me. Yeah, it, it's discouraging to see where the discourse has gone on that. And as you mentioned, there are many libertarians that are seeing uh, vaccine passports are a solution to get us out of the pandemic and even embracing it, even encouraging uh, the setting up of these systems. Uh, but when they when they try to spin it as private, you know, they're, they're, they're obscuring the fact that it also has a heavy government component in it. Uh, if you want to make a va vaccine passport system available to private businesses, it has to come from somewhere. And it doesn't seem to be the private sector that's setting it up. Uh, rather, you have governors like uh, Andrew Cuomo, or you have people like Fauci that are uh, envisioning a, a massive federal bureaucracy making this available to private uh, entities to use them. On top of that, you have heavy political pressure from people that are invested in lockdowns and all these measures that we've seen over the last year uh, to move to this as the next thing. So it's not just uh, uh, we're going to make this available for private businesses that want to have a, ba a vaccine passport if you use their restaurant or their bar or their gym. Uh, they're strongly trying to encourage it, trying to nudge businesses in that direction. It's like you should be a responsible business and therefore buy into the government system that we're setting up. Uh, so I look at something like that and I say, there's nothing libertarian about that at all. Uh, and in fact, it's a misrepresentation of what vaccine passports are doing and where they came from to try to recast it as this private sector thing, because the government's fingerprints are all over it. Yeah, it, it may well be big tech that that implements this program, but um, you, you don't have to do much of a Google search to discover that the Biden administration nationally, and Fauci's taking the lead on this, they're... They're the engineers, and and I'm an economist, and and I understand that the difference between government ownership of the means of production yeah. and government control of the means of production is not really all that different in practice, and and there's there's just it's hard to imagine, which gets me back to my historical analogy, and I want to I want to use the story about Fauci and the AIDS hysteria that he created to imagine a world in 2022 where the government-controlled uh, vaccination passports have created two classes of citizens, those who are allowed to participate in civil society, going to the Walmart, going out to dinner, um, going to a ball game. You know, these are, these are pretty fundamental American um, rights as far as I'm concerned, um, versus those that aren't allowed because they haven't complied with what is ultimately a government demand that they get vaccinated. And if you think back to um, the, the analogy of, of, of AIDS possibly, according to Fauci, being spread through um, casual contact, um, it strikes me that the analogy today is, is asymptomatic spread, right? Which used, to be, which used to be called, you're healthy, now you're asymptomatic <laughs> and you're a spreader. Um, do people appreciate the civil liberties implications of, of dividing people based on their health status and, and what would happen to people who haven't been blessed with, with the proper credentials? Yeah, this is where I really worry. I mean, you can just look back at American history or world history in general to find that disability discrimination is real. Discrimination against people that are, uh, are, are not, not seen as part of uh, a, a, a protected group is very, very real. Uh, we also have clear evidence that uh, you know, the, the 
mechanisms like a vaccine passport, they seem to privilege those with means, those that are at the very top of the income uh, st uh, structure. You, uh, I think there was an announcement that went out uh, from the New York Mets the other day that I was kind of laughing at it, just how ridiculous it looked. It said, if you want to go to a Mets game in 2021, you need a vaccine passport and a negative coronavirus test and just this long list of, of checkbook, uh, checkmark things that you had to comply with just to go into the stadium. And the first thing that struck me about it is, you know, the people that are going to be able to comply with that with ease are also wealthy there are also people that have leisure in their life and means to uh, to go out and be tested on a regular basis. Uh, the typical working class American that just wants to get the cheap seats in the back of the bleachers, uh, you know, this is an onerous burden that they're going to uh, to have to comply with just to go to like a ball game. Uh, and you start thinking of something like that, expand that to all of society. You, you set yourself up for a very discriminatory regime that is not only uh, uh, separating, separating people based on whether they have or have not uh, complied with the passport, it's doing so on income lines and social status lines that advantage the wealthy, that advantage people that I'd call over the last year as part of the Zoom privilege class, those could, that could work from home on their couch and dial in uh, and do things remotely while the uh, the working class is delivering their food by Uber Eats or, uh, or their products by Amazon shopping online and having to actually go out in public. So uh, I, I see one of the really unfortunate uh, effects of this is that we're, you know, you create this kind of a divide in society. It's really hard to come back from. Uh, it's really inegalitarian in its nature, and it does so in a way that, uh, uh, you know, is just prone to abuse and prone to replicating some of the worst discriminatory components of our history. Yeah, you you alluded to the story of Ryan White, who was yeah. uh, a young boy who. Um, inadvertently um, came down with HIV through a blood transfusion because he was a hemophiliac. And you, you link to this story, but people people should Google this if you, if you think we're being hyperbolic. What it is that um, the, the government schools and civil society did to this young boy, he was, he was demonized and ostracized and made a, more than a second-class citizen. His, they made his short life incredibly miserable to the point where his parents actually had to move to a different place in hopes that he would be allowed to go to public school. Um, this, we should be freaking out about this. Like yeah. we civil libertarians, left, right, center, I don't care where you come from. This, this is not an American idea. This is something that, that, that communist China is very comfortable with. They've already implemented a vaccine passport. And it's it's essentially the same infrastructure that they use for their their very Orwellian social credit system that ranks citizens based on their behavior, based on what the government expects them to do, and and here we are. Um, it's I I, I want to go nuts because I can't get people to see this, but it's it's so obvious to me that this is not the path that America should take. Yeah. Fully agree. And again, one of the great tragedies of this is it's spreading distrust in vaccines that don't need to be there. Um, it, it's it's something that is undermining public confidence that would naturally emerge if we relied on voluntary human behavior, voluntary rational action in uh, compatibility with self-interest. If I'm vulnerable and I'm in a population that's at high risk for the coronavirus disease, 
I want to go out and get vaccinated. If I view that I'm going to be exposed to this, I want to go out and get vaccinated. But I do that under my own volition. And I think the vast majority of Americans right now would do that under their own volition if they were able to. And yet we're dealing with a case where there's scarcity among vaccines. And layered on top of that, you have uh, a proposal to create this top-down, heavy-handed bureaucratic regime that uh, is attempting to enforce the one thing that it cannot uh, competently even provide at this moment through voluntary measures. Uh, so it seems completely Orwellian. It seems entirely putting the cart in front of the horse in terms of the, of the, the rollout. And it's doing it in, in, a, in a way that's like socially destructive that is actually undermining the objective it purports to want to achieve. And that's the, the real tragedy of it all. You know, there's, you know, the government has a history on this. It's not like they've always earned our trust when it comes yeah. to the public health decisions that they've made. And you, you referenced uh, uh, eugenics, which, which very much had the, uh, a grip on, on presidents like Woodrow Wilson. But there's, um, there's a historical reason why African-Americans would be skeptical about a government-imposed top-down vaccination program. And you, you reference this in this paper as well, that the, Tus the infamous Tuskegee uh, syphilis program, that I had no idea that that went on for a generation. That I can't imagine um, how wicked that is, but, but remind people what that is, because it, yeah. there's a reason why African Americans, uh, some of them are, are skeptical. They don't they don't trust the government. Yeah, this was basically a government program that uh, was run uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And what they did is they uh, purported to go into the African American com community, Tuskegee, Alabama, uh, which is a uh, a large uh, black population uh, city. It's the home of the Tuskegee um, uh, University now. Uh, what they did is they purported to uh, to offer cures for syphilis, uh, this, this horrific disease, and uh, they were actually serving placebos up to people uh, and watching them and observing them almost like they were lab rats suffer through and eventually die of uh, of this disease to test the placebo against the uh, uh, other forms of treatments and see what would happen under advanced um, cases of syphilis. And it ends up being something that uh, basically uses human beings, real human beings, uh, for a scientific experiment uh, without any regard to their rights, without any uh, concern for their own personal agency in it. And it's done on racial lines against a historically marginalized and discriminated against group of people, uh, all under the auspices of a, go a government program. Which, which gets us full circle to what the classical liberal libertarian, um, I believe in in the wisdom of free people kind of approach would be, and and if you if you want to know what the what that is in a nutshell, just just go read the the great Barrington Declaration that that basically says that um, you know we should uh, we should do what Mom said, and and wash our hands, and stay home if you're sick and really focus on protecting vulnerable populations. But the last thing you want to do is shut down the productive economy because right. um, there is, I, I, don't know, I don't know if the Great Barrington Declaration says this, but there's, there's a fundamentally a link between um, public wealth and public health. Absolutely. Absolutely, and especially among the least well-off. Uh, and that's the big burden that we've imposed on the lockdowns. They are probably the most regressive policy 
uh, in the last century. I mean, you have to go back to some of the stuff that was happening during the Great Depression uh, to see something that has fallen more heavily on the poor, uh, more heavily on the least well-off, and yet it's being embraced by progressive leftists uh, who are mostly of the upper income classes uh, as if this is the scientific thing to do. And we're starting to see this in some surveys. There was a, uh, a study that came out a few months ago that asked people to compare uh, where their, uh, their income level was, their job security, uh, their mental well-being, a whole variety of, of interrelated metrics uh, today to where they stood a year ago before the pandemic started. And across the board, everyone is worse off with one exception, and that one exception is people that make over $100,000 a year and that are college educated. So the elite are doing fine because they're sitting at home watching Netflix, uh, enjoying Uber Eats and Amazon deliveries during the pandemic. Everyone else is getting screwed, and I think we're seeing that same pattern started starting to transfer over into the centrally planned vaccine rollout, when in fact the optimal policy should be the exact opposite. It should be mass availability of vaccines to anyone and everyone who wants them with a, a, a key emphasis upon the most vulnerable need to take this vaccine, i.e. the elderly, those with comorbidities, uh, not trying to shove it onto everyone through a central plan, but trying to put accurate, reliable information, scientific information out there about who is vulnerable, how to know if you're vulnerable, and what to do if you're in that situation to rapidly get the vaccine and, uh, you know, build us toward herd immunity so we'll get back to normal. The the Zoomer class, I, I live in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, and I'm surrounded by a permanent class of people who make very good money and never, ever once in this last year worried for even a moment that they might lose their jobs because they work for the government or they work for some government-adjacent organization that feeds off of the government. And I, I've wondered about, about this. If, if you are uh, sheltering in place and you have a government job, let's say, and you are having all of your food delivered... Um, you know, either either through a grocery app or or um, Uber Eats, um, and you believe lockdowns work, isn't that the most unethical of positions to take? Because you're basically insisting that that people making a fraction of what you make take all of the risks so that you can uh, win the benefits. It's shifting the entire burden of disease onto the poor. We find this happened historically throughout uh, some of the worst plagues of the Middle Ages. What did the, the wealthy uh, duke or lord or count do every time there was a plague that came through the city? Well, they'd retire to their castle out in the country, and then it ravaged the city or it ravaged the village uh, and, until basically immunity kicks in, herd immunity kicks in, and it's safe to return. Uh, this is a, a regressive medieval approach to studying diseases, to responding to diseases. And unfortunately, we're seeing it among the upper classes, the Zoom class. Uh, meanwhile, everyone else that's just trying to make it by uh, is not only carrying the burden of the disease itself, but is also hardest hit by the measures that are put in place under the false name of combating the disease, the lockdowns. So give us... Uh... Let, let's leave it there. And I, I hope that a year from now, we do not do this show again. And we are still debating <laughs> vaccine passports and lockdowns. I'm hoping that that sanity and liberty and humanity return to the American discourse. But 
I have to say, you guys have been heroic. You've, you've uh, at AIER, you guys have been on this um, conversation almost from day one. Um, you've def definitely taken some uh, demonization in social media, but um, that, that probably means that you're doing something useful. Give us, give us a quick uh, um, encapsule of, of where we can get more on this subject um, from uh, you guys. Yeah. So I say start with our website, AIER.org. Uh, we put uh, almost daily updates about uh, the pandemic, its economic effects, and the political debate around it uh, on our site. Uh, we also have the Great Barrington Declaration. That's GBDeclaration.org. I'd encourage people to go on there, read it, sign it. Uh, we also have uh, plenty of scientific information on that website as well that, that, that walks through uh, some of the reasoning and justifications behind the position we took. Uh, but on top of that, I'd say even in the darkest of times, even though we are facing, uh, you know, as you noted, uh, outright vilification for opposing the lockdowns, for standing up for liberty in this moment, uh, for asking appropriate questions about the motives of political actors, uh, I think the tide of public opinion is finally starting to turn. I think Americans are fed up with misinformation they've gotten from their government, with contradictory vac uh, vacillating statements from Anthony Fauci and Neil Ferguson and all of these other uh, supposed uh, public health authorities. Uh, and they're starting to recognize that yes, the virus has turned the corner, cases are going down nationwide, uh, even though we're having regional spikes, uh, they're seeing that the, uh, the, the tide is against the lockdown or narrative. Uh, and they're also seeing a clear real-time demonstration over the last year that lockdowns were tried, they were costly, they had heavy-handed effects on all of society, and they did not work. I think I saw that you were going to be at Porkfest. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So be at Porkfest, Freedom Fest, a couple other uh, conferences over the summer. So, okay, I'll I'll see you at at both of those events, and uh, I'm I'm eager to gather with free people again. I don't know exactly. about you. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Thanks. To thanks, Phil. Talk to you. All right. Take care. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? That's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people.